Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle at Climate One. Let us know what you think about powering America's future. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Pope Francis became a superstar on his recent U.S. tour, demanding that all of us act now on climate change. The Pope is calling us to close the largest gap ever measured by human beings, the 14 inches between the heart and the brain. How is this going to impact the upcoming Paris Climate Conference? We have a very interesting good mood developing internationally that is basically saying, okay, actually, we are going to get to an agreement. So the question now for Paris is, how do we do that? Working our way to yes on the climate conundrum. Up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. These Climate One conversations, hosted by Greg Dalton, were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. in his new encyclical and in his recent talks at both the U.N. and the U.S. Congress says that it is our moral obligation to the poor to address climate change, and the world may be listening. In preparation for the upcoming climate talks in Paris this December, most major economies around the globe have now announced a plan to cut down on fossil fuel pollution. Some say, too little, too late. Others are hopeful that we can begin to move the ball forward. In today's show, Greg takes a look at some of the biggest polluters in Asia, notably China and India, and how they are grappling with climate change. But we'll start with three guests who've been parsing the Pope's words on the topic. Reverend Canon Sally Bingham is an Episcopal priest and the president and founder of Interfaith Power and Light, which provides a religious response to climate disruption. Sam Licardo is mayor of San Jose, California. He traveled to Rome recently for a meeting of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And Father Paul Fitzgerald is president of the University of San Francisco, a Jesuit school, and has a unique take on the first Jesuit pope. Here's our conversation about the pope's perspective on climate and the poor. Integral ecology is one of the key uh, philosophical touchstones of Pope Francis' encyclical. So, Paul Fitzgerald, tell us about that. What the Pope is calling us to is simply to be profoundly persons of integrity and to close the largest gap ever measured by human beings, the 14 inches between the heart and the brain. We can never lie to ourselves in our hearts. But with our brains alone, we can make up all kinds of excuses and rationales for any kind of bad behavior. What we know in our hearts and then what we understand with our minds, what we say with our words and what we do with our hands should all be the same thing. And so the way we inhabit this planet with all the human persons, and he keeps calling us back to care for the poor, but also then care for the other living beings and care for the ecosystems, that's integral ecology, but it's just an integrated human existence. Sally Bingham, what has been the impact of Pope Francis outside the Catholic Church, other faith traditions? You know, it's been an amazing boost to the entire religious community because our group, which is interfaith with Jews and Muslims and Christians of all kinds, and they're all working to try to implement change in terms of how the U.S. responds to the climate problem. And with the Pope coming out for all people of conscience, not just for Roman Catholics, we are exalted. I mean, everyone is just jumping on this message to say, see, we told you so. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope says that it must be true. Uh, and Sally Bingham also, one of the phrases in the encyclical says, quote, many things have to change course, but it is we human beings above all who need to change. He's asking 
us to do some hard work, every individual. Every individual, and I think that he has invited us into the communion of life, that we are all part of a one big universe, and every one of our behaviors affects our neighbors who we're called to love, whether it's the coffee we drink or the clothes we wear or the energy we use. Every single thing we do affects another person and the planet. Sam Licardo, how do you actually implement this in a, in a city? I mean, most politicians don't ask their voters to change. They say, like, you're going to deliver something, right? The Pope is not suggesting that this is a technological problem that needs a technological fix. He's talking about an adaptive problem that requires a complete shift in cultural paradigm, a, a revolution of sorts, and then how we think and, and, and act in our, in our daily lives. And so that's not an easy sell uh, in politics. You know, it's, he's not looking for us to come out with the solution of spending more money on, say, uh, carbon sequestration and just solving this issue. Uh, I think the question is, how can we, as community leaders, engage our community in actually doing the much harder work of understanding the extraordinary lifestyle shift that's required here? And Mayor Licardo, you run the city that's the heart of Silicon Valley. He's taken a swing at Exxon and Apple. Uh, I, I'm a mayor. I happen to have a bit of a bias in favor of technology. I think there's a lot we can do. And certainly, for example, if we're going to retrofit a city that's been built around the automobile to one that's built around people, technology is going to help. Uh, but uh, that doesn't take anything away from the fundamental truth that I think Pope Francis has hit here, which is this is a moral issue. Paul Fitzgerald, you run a university that's full of technology-addicted students, probably. You know, how do they square this challenge of technology with their daily life and culture? Part of it is we offer a holistic education, teaching on climate policy, teaching on you know, what are the technological fixes. You know, Pope Francis is not a Luddite. He's not asking us to go back to the uh, pre-industrial revolution. At the same time, he warns us very clearly that if in our great, great generosity and love, we wanted to bring the rest of the human population up to our level of, of consumption, we would kill the planet in a week. Mm. One North American is as much weight on the planet as 250 Somalis. So here in North America, ours is not the normal, typical, common experience of human beings on the planet. So how to address poverty without trashing the planet, Sally Bingham? The people that are hurt the most by climate change are the poor people. They suffer the worst first, droughts and the wildfires and the sea rise and the um, refugees that are having to move because of a lack of resources in their homes. We have a moral responsibility to look after those folks. So there are 300 million people in India who have no access to electricity. Now, we can't say, well, that's too bad. You can't have the electricity the way we've had it in the United States and Western Europe. But what we can do is subsidize some renewable energy for the places in the world that maybe don't have to go through first coal and then oil and then fracking, um, <laughs> that we could help out with with renewable energy to start with, just the way many people in India have cell phones now, but they've never had a landline. We're talking about climate change and Pope Francis at Climate One with Sally Bingham, Paul Fitzgerald, and Sam Licardo. Sally Bingham, how do you think Pope Francis changes the politics of climate in, in the United States? 30% of Congress is Catholic. There will still remain the deniers who will dismiss the Pope because they don't want to go down the path of cutting our fossil fuel use. But I do think he's already made such an enormous difference in saying in the encyclical that we needed to cut back on fossil fuels. And the big secular environmental organizations are using Pope Francis now to make the changes or help make the changes that they've been preaching and teaching about for the last 25 years. And I think that, that he is breaking a lot of boundaries, and, and I think that his message is, is going to seep through to enough people that we will see change. Is there a risk of breaking too many boundaries? We have this church and state thing in this country, that, so you start to blend uh, faith and politics. That makes some people nervous. Sam Licardo? I, I don't think we have to blur those boundaries. I mean, the good news is, is that uh, the overwhelming preponderance of scientific expertise out there uh, just happens to agree with the church in this case. Uh, this is 
Not the situation, we say, with Galileo. Uh, we're in a position now where <laughs> we're, we've got a pope who's saying, look, we get the science. Uh, now it's a moral issue for us. Uh, so I think we can appropriately say the scientific issue has been largely resolved. Mm-hmm. Now it's really a question for how we respond as a community. Sally Bingham, California has some leading climate policies, and there's concern in this state that California's cap-and-trade will hurt the poor communities often of color in this state. And and Pope Francis, in his encyclical, came out pretty hard against carbon trading and said basically it could be kind of a scam. I don't think that the Pope was saying cap-and-trade is not a good system. I think what he's saying is that it has to be watched very carefully But here in California, the statistics are showing that it's actually working. And a great deal of the money that is being raised through the cap-and-trade goes back into low-income communities for adaptation, for subsidies for renewable energy, and um, it's going to help electrical bills for people in poor communities. And so I think what he's saying is, if you're going to be making money and open up a market, then it's got to be watched very carefully that it isn't abused. San Ricardo fossil fuel companies will often say fighting climate change will raise energy costs for low-income Americans. It will hurt the poor. Is that true? Can you fight climate and help the poor at the same time? I think you can fight the climate and help the poor, but it can still also be true that it's going to raise energy costs. And I think we have to have the courage to accept the fact that we've had really cheap energy in the United States for a very long time, particularly relative to other industrialized nations. And we could probably live with a little higher energy costs in order to uh, reorient our economy. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Do you feel the, the rabbis, the ministers, the pastors on the ground at the local level of churches, do they have adequate knowledge and background in climate science to answer the questions of, of their, their parishioners and to provide the right answers you know, to this, this complicated question? Sally Bingham. You don't have to know the science of climate change to talk about the fact that we are the stewards of creation. And we are the people, God put Adam in the garden to till it and to keep it. And without having to go into how many parts per million of carbon are in the atmosphere, simply introducing the fact that you, as a person of faith in a pew, are called to care for this creation. Paul Fitzgerald? A hundred years, 75 years ago, at a typical Catholic mass, the priest was the best educated guy in the room. At a typical parish today, the priest is below average in terms of his education and his sophistication. So even as we have a Francis who is just you so speak spectacular. For yourself. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, got a, I got a room temperature IQ and I'm happy with it. Um, you know, it's, we have religious leaders who ask maybe pointed questions, but it's really important that the people in the pews, the, the lay folks who have expertise, change the social milieu to be more just, humane, and sustainable, and that is the responsibility of the laity. The clergy are just there to help. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. I'm uh, Arnie Testa. My bottom line question is, can the value of proper actions related to climate preservation and improvement be monetized to those money-oriented people who only look at it from the bottom line in terms of what does it mean to me financially? Sam McCarthy? Many of us who believe in the need to take action on climate change believe in the importance of putting a price on carbon. And I know Pope Francis has concerns about it, but I do believe that is an effective approach. And I think it is possible to move through the market. I don't think the, the market solves the more fundamental issue of the throwaway culture that I think Pope Francis is condemning that is at the root of all of this. But I, I do believe that we can at least address some of the symptoms that way. Let's go to our last question. Welcome. How do we get ourselves back to a point where we stop thinking about just looking at the bottom line money and start really begin to fill with our heart? Because things are bad, but how do, we, how do we reconcile the thoughts with our heart? Paul Fitzgerald? I think that Pope Francis is asking us to, to do that a bit. You know, let's care more about each other and let's care more about the world and let's find that we're happier doing that than chasing ever greater wealth. Greg Dalton has been talking about Pope Francis and his radical encyclical on climate change. 
with Reverend Canon Sally Bingham of Interfaith Power and Light, San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, and Father Paul Fitzgerald, President of the University of San Francisco. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You're listening to Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Let's turn our attention to Asia. China now holds the dubious distinction of the biggest climate polluter. But while China continues to build coal plants at a breakneck pace, it's also stepping up production of solar panels and electric cars. Is Beijing's epic pollution driving them towards green solutions? And can a command economy move the needle faster than the messy, contentious democratic debate we are currently enmeshed in? Here to talk about the Asian approach to climate change are three Asia experts. Mark Clifford is executive director of the Asia Business Council. He wrote a book called The Greening of Asia, The Business Case for Solving Asia's Environmental Emergency. Stella Lee is CEO of the American arm of BYD Motors. That's Build Your Dreams Motors, a China-based car company. And Orville Schell is director of the Center for U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society and former dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. Here's our conversation about the greening of Asia with Greg Dalton. Mark Clifford, let's begin with a very interesting character that you write about in your book. He studied physics in Australia, and he thought about opening a Chinese restaurant, but he did something else. Xu Rong started a company called SunTech. He went back to China, got some help from the local government to um, build a solar panel factory. And within a couple of years, he'd listed on the New York Stock Exchange, become the biggest solar company in the world, and completely changed the face of solar energy. Solar prices have fallen 95% or more in the last decade or so. And it was because of people like Xu Rong. There wasn't a happy ending, though, because he went bust. So you know, there are some ups and some downs. It's an entrepreneurial and uh, difficult business sometimes. Orville Schell, what do you take from the, the SunTech story and, and the solar story in China? I mean, in many ways, it speaks, I think, of the immense dynamism in China. But I, I think that there's an object lesson here about how in a country that is sort of reinventing itself so profoundly, there is this tremendous market instability in any, every realm of life. Stella Lee, by some accounts, there's too many cars and too many car factories in China. Could there be a car bubble in China? In next 10 years, China will be the biggest market for electric vehicle. So you need to like, take your opportunity, but at the same time, grow your company step by step, like investment on the R&D, on technology, reliable quality, and then deliver good service to customer. And speaking of big ambitions, what lesson can be learned from the crash of the Chinese stock market this summer? I think what we saw there was the collision between the old system, Marxism, Leninism, centralized economy, command economy, and the other side, this kind of very vibrant market-oriented new economy that sprung up. And when the bubble finally broke, the government could not resist doing what I think everybody who studies markets knows is a fatal move, move in and intervene and try to prop it up. Mark Clifford, does that raise questions about the legitimacy or the sort of uh, credibility of the Chinese state? China invested $90 billion last year, Chinese companies like BYD and solar companies, in clean tech investments. $90 billion. That's almost as much as the U.S. and the EU put together. So their companies are going to come and go. There are going to be crashes. There are going to be bubbles. But the point is, what is happening in China right now in the clean tech area, the environmental area, is real. And we can look at companies like SunTech, which show the instability. But we can look at companies like Goldwind, which is now the world's second largest wind turbine maker, or companies like BYD. And is climate and clean energy an existential top-tier priority issue for the Chinese government, Orville Shell, or is it something that's, that's lower down the ranks? As it is in the United States, many Americans don't consider environmentalism in a top-five issue. We have a tremendous amount of anti-scientific prejudice, whereas China is ruled by technocrats, and there is much less sort of doubtful attitude about science and technology is the motor force of the future. Stella Lee? China is, has a more different approach. The, the money 
go to the like public uh, transportation. And then the, you will see like the growth for EV, electric vehicle in China, every year is by 300%. So maybe U.S. did not feel the pressure, but in next two years, you'll see China will be the global leader. Nobody can even close with them. Orville Shell, there's been a couple hundred million people who've moved into the middle class, into China's cities, another 300 million people behind yes. them. How China urbanizes will have a big impact on the global economy, certainly the global climate. The problem confronting China is staggering, staggering. They had several decades of really reckless uh, development, which is not going to be so easy to repair. The land that has been made toxic with polluted water, that's going to take a long time to clean up. What I really worry about, though, is not cleaning up water and air. We know how to do that. What I worry about is cleaning up carbon emissions and greenhouse gases. That is a staggering task. Can China solve conventional pollution problems, smog in Beijing, and solve climate at the same time? I think they are more inclined to solve the problem of air pollution, water pollution, conventional kinds of pollution, because in an immediate way that is affecting people, people know it and they feel tremendous pressure to do that. But I do think that in cleaning up air pollution, there is an opportunity also through things like electric cars wind power, all the conventional things you know about, to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. Stella Lee, what do you think? Is China going to solve both or just solve the yeah. more conventional pollution problem that people see? China have to solve that. If not, how about this 1.3 billion people leave? How about their future? They will find a solution, like use wind farm, use solar farm to generate electricity, and use battery to store electricity. So you can make the wind farm solar farm to be independent generation. And then the second, for transportation, electric vehicle, electric trucks, electric bus, is reliable, it's working, the technology is ready. So now China has a different mindset. We have a resource, we have money, then we have people, we have a business opportunity. So this will happen. In the next 20 years, you will see the green uh, kind of economic will be the major engine for Chinese GDP growth. Mark Clifford, Warren Buffett owns about 10% of BYD. What do you make of that? BYD is way more than an electric vehicle company. It started out as a battery maker. And above all, it's a storage company. If Stella and her boss, Mr. Wang Chuan-Fu, can solve the storage problem, the battery problem, then we've gone a long way towards making things like solar and wind really part of the grid. And we don't need to build as many coal-fired power plants. So I'm not going to second-guess Warren Buffett, although I know he's made a lot of money since he invested back in 2008 <laughs> in the company. But uh, there is a lot of good news coming out of China. Orville Shell, the U.S.-China pact last year where President Obama and the president of China did a deal. About half of the global emissions come from those two countries. What's the significance of that deal? U.S.-China relations of late have not been particularly good, and I would say have every potentiality of getting worse. However, the bright spot is cooperation on climate change. And I think if we can elaborate out from that, it has the chance of actually helping the global climate change problem as well as helping U.S.-China relations. We haven't talked about India, Orville Shell. The U.S.-China pact put a fair amount of pressure on President Modi, but they haven't done as much on energy as China has. No, and I think, you know, uh, India has not had the big run-up, that period of kind of dirty development before you get to the green development. And the other thing to remember is India has a lot of really dirty coal. Cheap, easy, and dirty. So I think India may have a very difficult time uh, reaching this sort of an initial phase of rapid development that we now see China sort of coming to the end of. Mark Clifford, any green prospects coming out of India? I rode an Arriva electric car in Delhi a few years ago. Pretty cool. To Orville's point, India has a different set of problems. And because there's not enough electricity and it's intermittent, you can't count on it, they have to use energy and resources more efficiently. They're investing a lot in solar and wind. And of course, Modi also wants to invest a lot in coal. But I don't know. India has been a lot more talk than action. China tends to under-promise and over-deliver on pledges, and I wouldn't say that's true of India. So 
it's, it's hard to say. Mark Clifford is executive director of the Asia Business Council and author of the new book, The Greening of Asia. We also have today here at Climate One, Orville Schell, director of the U.S.-China relations at the Asia Society, and Stella Lee from BYD Motors. I'm Greg Dalton. Stella Lee, do you worry about Riva or other electric car challengers coming out of India, or do you think not much competition for BYD? To promote electric uh, vehicle, you demand the government is very strong, and the Chinese government system is the best fit to implement this kind of new industry, new infrastructure. But uh, like India and even in U.S., westernized government system have a lot of weakness to do that because the government has no power to push <laughs> unlike the Chinese government. Is that really true? Is that really true that China has the power? Yes. I think it's no. true until it stops being true, <laughs> because it's a much more brittle, more delicately balanced, and it has a pretension to control things. So this is a great strength, as Stella has pointed out. It's also an enormous weakness, because it's so tightly wound that when something breaks loose, it can have a kind of a very infectious effect on the system as a whole, and it's a big danger could unravel quickly. Mark Clifford, you write about some real success stories, innovation stories in your book. Manila Water was an interesting one. Well, Manila Water is a great success story, but it, it reflected the unfortunate fact that the Philippines government couldn't really supply water to the residents of a fast-growing capital city. And Manila Water was able to start a virtuous circle where a private company um, got the concession, invested a lot of money in effectively giving everyone water and then actually collecting money from the people who were taking the water. And so if government policies can work with private sectors and work with civil society, businesses can often solve really granular problems like getting water to your house. So when you turn on the tap, water comes out. But Tough, still tough. A lot of people in the United States worry about the privatization of water being treated like a commodity and then profit motive getting in there. That's, that's challenging to some Americans. It's challenging to everyone. I, I think especially when it comes to things like water, things that we have to have to survive, it's very difficult to have the private sector running things. But in some places, Cambodia is another example where the private water supply has been a phenomenal success. But these tend to be places where the government can't deliver the services. But you, know, you need a strong state. You need strong civil society. You have to have the press. You have to have environmental organizations. That's something India has. China doesn't. So I think you, it has to be a three-way kind of uh, partnership. Water is a big concern in northern China, Orville Shell. Glaciers are melting. They provide water to a billion people. How's that going to play out? Well, this is an enormous problem. As you know, China's divided. The north is dry, the North China Plain, the south is wet, south of the Yangtze. So the largest engineering project in world history is the south-north water transfer project to bring water to the North China Plain. There are many problems. Water is very polluted. Uh, it's very expensive. How do we deal in this century with what is going to be the scarcity of all scarcities, namely water. Mark Clifford, Singapore has become something of a water innovator. It's not a wet area. Tell us about Singapore's well, innovation in water. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, who, of course, was the founding father of Singapore, just passed away recently. He knew that water was an existential threat. And he and his countrymen worked for the last 50 years to get water independence. And they've pretty much done that with a combination of desalination, recycled sewage water, collecting every drop that, that falls. And um, they're on their own. And like Israel, they knew that they can't survive without water. Unfortunately, big countries like China and the U.S. tend to sort of think there's lots of water around. And I think we have to have a more Singaporean kind of approach. Orville Shell, climate will affect some of the most vulnerable people in Asia who contributed least to climate change. How is that going to be dealt with in China and elsewhere, these vulnerable populations who are poor, living close to nature, close to the sea? Recently, the Asia Society did a map of what things will look like when sea level rises, if all of the ice melts on the planet. And it's not a pretty picture. You lose a good chunk of China, all of Shanghai, the Yangtze Delta, et cetera, et cetera. So the stakes, I think, are very, very high. And uh, you know, many people in the poorest countries will be affected both by rising sea level and also by diminished flows of, of rivers. And it was around exactly those rivers that all the great civilizations of Asia have arisen, from the Yellow River to the Yangtze to the Salween, the Mekong, the Irrawaddy, the Brahmaputra, you name it. So this is no small-scale problem. This is basic 
plumbing for billions of people. And this is why it's so important that the U.S. and China, if they do nothing else, lean into this one. What gives you hope? I, I believe that human ingenuity and human spirit, and after we've tried everything else, we usually do the right thing. The U.S.-China agreement, China's recent pledges in the run-up to the Paris uh, climate talks, I mean, it wasn't until 2007 that China even talked about these issues, and now it's become a major focus of Chinese policy. We have a president now who, who believes this is a serious issue, believes in science, so you know, these are the two countries that are going to make it happen. I think our private sector, our governments, and our, at least in the U.S., civil society will really make a difference. Let's go to audience questions. Welcome. All right. Great panel. Thank you very much. Uh, can you talk about the role of nuclear power in Asia and whether nuclear would be a solution for the climate problem in Asia? Mark okay, Clifford? I'll take that. China has the world's most aggressive nuclear program. They're going to um, basically be about the size of the French nuclear industry. Um, by 2020, it's barely a drop in the bucket. It goes from 3% to 5 or 6% of China's power needs. In France, the same amount of nuclear produces about 80% of the need. But uh, there is a lot of public opposition in China as well as in other places. It's a lot harder since Fukushima to build nuclear power plants. But uh, unfortunately, it's not really a solution. I think we need to focus a lot more on things like energy efficiency, which won't require these huge and, you know, politically difficult central power plants. Orville Shell, we've seen some bridge collapses, some, some high-speed rail collapse in China. We worry about, mm, what's going on at the nuclear plants? Well, I mean, nuclear power is a godsend if you worry about carbon emissions. It's exactly the opposite when they blow up, uh, <laughs> as, we, as we saw in Fukushima. Uh, I think that uh, there's much greater opportunity to use renewables like wind and solar. The big problem, as Stella has pointed out, is Storage. Yes. If we solve the storage problem, then we really have a solution. Still, yeah. Lee, that is the holy grail. If you really crack storage, <laughs> you're going to be very wealthy and successful. But it, it, is the price of storage coming down? A lot of people think it's been frustrating how slow the price of storage has dropped. Yeah, the storage price is coming down. Nuclear just will be a small part of the solution. But in the end, the major part will be wind farm and the solar panel. The technology is here. The solution is here. The next uh, step is how we can really make this change through the policymaker to the like utility company to really change the whole industry. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I, I can, I'm curious to bring this from a national level to a personal level. So I hear about people complaining about the air. My parents live in Sichuan, so... Every time I hear about them talking about the air quality is so bad, but not enough on their side of doing something. So curious to hear if anyone is actually doing anything about it other than just complaining about what the government is doing. So you want your parents to stop complaining and do something. Okay. <laughs> Orville Shell, there are a fair number of environmental protests in China, people venting, having any impact? Well, I think this is where China is somewhat challenged. The way in which the environmental movements have worked in the West is that they have formed in civil society outside of government. And governments have been pushed, and then people in government who wanted to do something about uh, environmental problems were supported by sort of civil society working in, in a kind of synergistic way. China has a very ambivalent attitude towards civil society organizations. It tolerates them and wants them in certain ways, but it does not appreciate their independence. So it doesn't have that particular feedback loop working well, nor does it have it in the media, because the media is controlled. And if the media can't be criticizing a government's environmental policies, it may be a longer time before there's a remedy. Mark Clifford, Executive Director of the Asia Business Council, Stella Lee, CEO of the American arm of BYD Motors, and Orville Schell, director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations, have been discussing Asia's role in the search for climate solutions. We'd like to know what you think about Asia and the upcoming climate talks. Join us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. The long-awaited Paris climate talks are fast approaching. As the planet breaks one heat record after another, climate change has arrived at our doorstep. 
and expectations are rising that this time the countries of the world will come together to find a way to protect our future. Our next two guests have experience with climate talks past and present. Christiana Figueres is Executive Secretary of the United Nations Climate Negotiations and will play a central role in the upcoming Paris Climate Summit. Bill Riley was chief of the U.S. EPA under President Bush Sr. and attended the first climate talks in Rio in 1992. Let's join Greg Dalton on the road to Paris. Bill Riley, almost a quarter of a century ago, you took President Bush to the Rio summit that created the U.N. Climate Convention on Climate Change. What was accomplished there? Does that make him my dad? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uncle, maybe. My uncle. (laughs) Not to date him, never me. But um, tell us what happened there, and then we'll get Christiana in terms of what's happened recently. But take us to Rio in 92 and set the foundation. At that time, there was a great debate about whether the convention itself was sufficient without very specific goals that we would try to achieve in terms of reduction of greenhouse gases. And the president decided that uh, the support was not sufficient for that. Uh, Later, of course, the Kyoto Protocol came along, and that did create what was considered a legal obligation. didn't make much difference because many countries did not come even close. But what was really different about the moment in 1992 was that uh, we had the preponderance of scientific opinion predicting climate change. We didn't, however, have the experience of it. Now we do. That is a big change. Whether it's in Alaska, the melting glaciers, or the drought in California, the evidence is all around us, and it seems to me now it ought to be much easier to create the consensus that gives us serious policy. So, Christiana Figueres, that takes us to Paris. We now have the experience. It's been framed as a moral issue. Kyoto didn't work out so well. What's going to happen in Paris? What's at stake? I think the implicit assumption was that the problem was in the future, and we don't know if we have the solutions. And I think what has fundamentally changed Mm -hmm. is that the problem is no longer in the future. The problem is in the present. And furthermore, the solutions are in the present. So we do have the technologies. We have a growing number of regulations and uh, legislations in place. And we have a very interesting good mood developing internationally that is basically saying, okay, actually, we are going to get to an agreement. So the question now for Paris is, how do we do that? And do fossil fuel producing countries realize that the Middle East, Russia, petrostates, are they on board with this? Because they have a lot, some people in those countries, very powerful, have a lot to lose, potentially from putting a price on carbon or moving away from fossil fuels. The Gulf states, Saudi Arabia and its neighbors, are already among the hottest countries in the world. They're already among the most water-insecure countries in the world. They cannot afford this risk. So you do have a very interesting shift where you have, on the one hand, Minister El-Naimi, Minister of Energy of uh, Saudi Arabia, saying publicly, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia understands that oil is not going to be the final solution, that it's not going to be with us forever. Period. Bill Riley, your thoughts on the transition of these energy-dependent states? I would expect that the fossil fuel-dependent states will try to slow it down. I think that uh, India will be a slow place to uh, accommodate to uh, a coal-free future, for example. And China, of course, itself has major coal uh, dependency. However, you know, I think that the example of the United States has got to be compelling. If you look at how rapidly we have transitioned from a 50% to somewhere in the 30% dependency on coal-fired power for our electric utilities, it shows it can be done. And now is a very good time to do it. The U.S. EPA is taking advantage of the low price of natural gas to really drive this change. Cheap natural gas is driven by fracking. So is fracking a good thing if you want to get the world off coal, which is the dirtiest of fossil fuels? Christiana Figueres. This is about avoiding abrupt changes countries want to have time to transition. You can't blame them. Everybody needs time to transition. And in that sense, oil and gas does represent an interesting transition fuel if they invest now into all of the technologies that will bring down even the emissions from oil and gas. They have to step up to the plate. Russia is also a state that's very dependent on natural gas. Russia is at odds with the United States a lot these days. Is it going to play ball and be supportive in this context? 
You know, the uh, fantastic thing about this, and it's honestly nothing short of miraculous, is that there is not a single country, Russia included, that is not playing ball. In fact, all of them understand that it is in their interest to cover everyone. By definition, that's going to be a complex agreement. Russia has presented their carbon management plan together with other countries. We already know that the sum total of all of those carbon management plans will not put us on the path of staying within the goal that governments have agreed to and that science has suggested. So part of the complexity of the Paris Agreement is how do you construct something that receives and acknowledges all of those carbon management plans as being a baseline, but also treats those only as a first step, as a down payment, if you will, and then takes everyone together in an increasing collaborative manner toward the final ultimate destination, which is the very difficult but absolutely necessary balance between the greenhouse gases that we will have and the natural absorption of the planet. Bill Riley, enlightened self-interest going to bring Russia and other states to, to really do as much as possible here? I think you put your finger on something that's important <clears throat> to them, and that is sustaining their gas production and sales. They do have very large supplies. They do also have significant oil deposits, And um, yet the impact of very high temperatures, I think it was, was it two, three summers ago, carried off tens of thousands of people, deaths associated with heat in Russia. Christiana Figueres, the heads of major European oil companies wrote you a letter. What did they say? They said they want to be part of the solution. They said they want uh, a price on uh, on carbon. Did you fall off your Um, chair when you read this? No. Okay. No, I didn't fall off my chair because it's a very natural evolution of a conversation that we've been having with them where, frankly, oil and gas companies have to be a part of the solution. It's a very clear choice. Do you want to continue to be a company or do you not? If you want to have business continuity, you have to get with the program. And you have to understand that we are going into a low-carbon economy. Do you want to contribute to that? Fantastic. Because these oil and gas companies, they have very, very deep pockets, and they have an amazing engineering capacity that is unequaled in any other sector. Once they get those two together and put them at the service of their clients today and tomorrow, this is an unstoppable force. U.S. companies were notably absent. Chevron, Exxon, why weren't they there? They were invited. They're not ready for, you know, reasons that are probably better known by people who carry a U.S. passport than me. But I don't take that no as a permanent no. I take that as a not yet. So I do not close my door to them. My door has always been open because they have to be part of the solution. We're not going to solve this without them. Bill Riley, are U.S. oil companies falling behind? You know... The surprising thing to many of these CEOs is that we have still not enacted legislation to regulate carbon. They expected it would come much sooner. They've been working really hard to stop it, to slow it down. They've been, some of them have been working very hard to stop it, but they're surprised they were successful. The, uh, <laughs> the, um, the fact is they have shadow pricing. So from an economic self-interest point of view, they're fully prepared but not only do they have shadow pricing, which actually assigns... At 60 to $80 a ton. $75 a ton, that's right, for, uh, for Shell, that's right. And uh, ExxonMobil publicly has long claimed an interest in seeing a carbon tax imposed. So I don't think that they will be uh, inconvenienced that seriously when finally we get a carbon tax. We hear so much about how Congress has not addressed it, and it hasn't. But that has not stopped the culture, the economy, cities and finally, a lot of these companies for making the progress that we need. If you're just joining us, our guest today, Climate One, are Christiana Figueres, Executive Secretary of the UN Climate Negotiations, and Bill Riley, the Senior Advisor at TPG and former head of the US EPA. I'm Greg Dalton. Christiana Figueres, you travel the world. What's at stake with the Paris negotiations? You know, the astonishing thing is that there is so much awareness outside of the United States. And whether people call it climate change or not, I talk, you know, to people who are aware of the climate impacts directly on their life. I talk to people who are already witnessing migration, not of animals, of trees. 
trees are migrating up the mountain because they no longer have the temperature and the rainfall that they need, so they need to move. And small island states where the little villages have been now raised up on stilts because the entire area of the village is a constant salty swamp because the water level has gotten there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's about experiential pain, right? So many people are actually living this on a daily basis. And climate impacts disproportionately fall on women. In particular in developing countries, because women are disproportionately responsible for food, water, and energy. Women are usually, if not always, responsible for cooking. For cooking, they need the water, they need the food, and they need to figure out how is this going to get cooked. So you have women walking two, three, four hours out to the forest to get wood, to get water, and cook their basic food. So they are truly at that nexus between energy, water, and food, and really responsible for that to ensure that their families survive. They don't call it climate change, but they're getting hit more than anyone else. That is why there are so many initiatives to actually focus very clearly on how women can begin to adapt to provide more water and food security to their families by introducing better crops, by introducing, in the case of Bangladesh, one of my favorite um, examples, a cooperative of women who have now substituted chickens for ducks because they keep on getting more and more floods. So out with the chickens, in with the ducks. Very smart, right? (laughs) And an amazing initiative that is now coordinating many, many NGOs around the world that is looking at 50% of women. Put this data point in your brain. 50% of women in the world are still cooking on open fires. That means three stones, three pieces of wood, pot, fumes, you know, killing their own lungs and those of the children. And the fantastic thing is you can use the different tools that we're developing under the Climate Convention to actually allow these women to cook in a more responsible way for the planet, but more importantly for themselves and for their health. Those solar cook stoves are pretty cool things. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Good afternoon. Thank you for being here today. My name is Mary Selkirk. I'm with the Citizens Climate Lobby. And as Mr. Riley has attested today, and many economists, investors, oil companies, civil society organizations, the World Bank, the IMF, have attested that decarbonizing the economy, the most effective way to do that, is through pricing carbon. So my question for Ms. Figueres is, in the run-up to the Paris talks, What do you think it will take, because the current negotiating language is quite vague with respect to committing to carbon pricing mechanisms as a way to mitigate climate change? So your comments on how the negotiators will make that happen. There are quite a few countries, in fact, 77 governments and 1,000 corporations that have signed up to this Alliance for Pricing Carbon, and that they are talking about allying themselves, a, a coalition of the, of the willing, if you will, or coalition of the interested, to make a political declaration, perhaps coinciding with Paris calling for carbon price. But I don't think that we are in a scenario in which we would have a carbon price globally but rather different carbon prices that are coming up and then eventually will lead to price discovery that standardizes across. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have our next question. Robert Archer, retired economist. World Bank and uh, Transparency International Industries show that a lot of low, moderate, and middle-income countries suffer from weak institutions and serious corruption. Will the UN, World Bank, and IMF provide support to the countries that want to pursue the simpler, more transparent carbon tax policy. I think that's a very important issue. I think that we do not want to squander the support for helping some of the developing countries by uh, allowing the funds to become uh, lost or uh, corruption to uh, distract them. And I think it's important to recognize we have new techniques of foreign assistance, pay for performance, cash on delivery, Uh, pioneered by Norway when it offered a billion dollars to Brazil to protect uh, against further deforestation of the Amazon, but did not transfer the funds until the project had been completed, until the government had actually 
succeeded in significantly reducing the deforestation. There are any numbers of models of other kinds of assistance that can be given that way, and I think it's very important that in the transfer of funds, whatever the portion is that is finally made available to developing countries, there be those kinds of controls and incentives and monitoring and transparency because we're going to want the countries who are supporting these programs, these funds, to believe in what they're doing and to see that it's genuinely making a difference. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. My name is Wayne Roth. I'm a member of SiliconValley350.org. I don't get the sense of urgency that I feel. Uh, I think we're really in a race against time with climate, and you want to carefully negotiate things between different countries and different, different groups that have different notions of what we need to do. James Hansen said in 2005, we are on the edge of climate system tipping points beyond which there is no redemption. And that was 10 years ago, and we've done very little. So, Christiane Figueres, do you feel enough urgency? Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) Do I feel urgency? I mean, you know, I, I wake up with a clock ticking in, my, in, in between my eyes. Uh, so, you know, I am totally with you on the urgency. Having said that, I also have to understand, and it is my responsibility to understand, that uh, policy development does not happen with that speed. And that is, frankly, where, you know, I put my, my most frustrating moments are bringing those two realities together. How the heck do you bring them together? And you know what? We have to because we don't have another option. We have to bring the urgency of science here, and we have to bring the progressive development of policy also online. So it's very, very difficult. Greg Dalton has been discussing prospects for the Paris Climate Summit with Christiana Figueres, Executive Secretary of the United Nations Climate Negotiations, and former EPA Chief Bill Riley who is a financial contributor to this program. Free podcasts of all our Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You'll also find video clips, photos, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineers are John Rieger and William Blum. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio. Mm-hmm.